welcome back to another episode of Out the Gate. I'm Ben Shaw, your host for this show about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. My guest this week has been into outdoor adventure since he was a young boy growing up in Turkey. But it was the sudden death of a friend during a rock climbing trip together that spurred him to focus his life on inspirational expeditions. Erden Arouche is a climber, sailor, and rower, and the first person to complete a solo circumnavigation under human power alone. He's also rode the Atlantic, the Pacific, and Indian Oceans, spending nearly a thousand days at sea alone. And this year, Erden left the California coast in his rowboat in June with the goal of reaching Hong Kong and then making his way to the summit of Mount Everest. His decision to make a pit stop in Hawaii allowed me to catch up with him via Zoom for this chat only days before he hit the seas again. He's currently out there, but you can listen to this conversation we had before he departed. So here we go. My name is Erdan Eruch. I am a, an accomplished ocean rower, a sailor, a sailing instructor, delivery captain, 50 gross ton, uh, near coastal master. <laughs> so I'm trying to play on the water and make a living on the water. Uh, I have big dreams, running out of time though. I'm 60 now. Well, you've already accomplished a lot on the water. There's so much <laughs> to talk to you about. But I think we should start with your current adventure. Tell us yes. where you are and how you ended up there. My current adventure is a row from North America to Asia on my way to Everest. I left Crescent City June 22nd with intentions to pass north of Hawaii nonstop. And then one thing led to another and I stopped at Waikiki on Oahu after 80 days at sea. And that was, the arrival was September 10th. And since then I tried to obtain a visa to China, still a no-go. I replaced my chart plotter. I reconfigured my watermaker setup. It was creating problems. Uh, vacuum issues where air was leaking into the system and it wasn't producing water. I. Uh, repaired a few things that I wanted to do, and then uh, it's now time to get going again. I am going to hopefully row to Hong Kong, failing that uh, Vietnam. Uh, the reason I aim for Hong Kong is because the Ocean Recovery Alliance is based out of there. Uh, the founder and current president, Doug Woodring, lives in Hong Kong, operates out of there. It's also registered in California. And this nonprofit, uh, its goals are to raise awareness about plastic pollution in the ocean and to suggest ways to reduce consumption of plastics. And I am an ambassador for them in partnership with them. Uh, we're doing this and they are putting together what they called Westbound Rower Wednesdays, well, or Westbound Wednesdays, 
on their website, Ocean Recovery Alliance. It's a educational stream of information that is published in English, Chinese, Spanish, and now Turkish as well. I was born in Cyprus, raised in Turkey, came to US in 86, started uh, ocean rowing proper in 2005. Yeah, been going on since. What, what's the name of your boat? My boat is called Around and Over. It doesn't have an official name. I was hoping to get a boat sponsor to name it, but that never happened. <laughs> uh, she arrived as Calderdale from England. It's a used boat that had been across the ocean twice, uh, across the Atlantic twice. Two British men rode it in 2001. They built it as well from Canary Islands to Barbados in the Atlantic rowing race. Hence the boat is known as a ARR class boat, Atlantic rowing race class. And this boat then was used by a mother-daughter team in 2004 and I bought it from them. And I have then crossed the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. So Atlantic wow. twice, North Atlantic, and then South Atlantic. Uh, I did a circumnavigation between 2007 and 2012. And that required me to cross uh, three oceans. By the time I got to Madagascar, since I had already rowed across the Atlantic Ocean in 2006, I became the first person to have rowed three oceans. And uh, with the accumulated time at sea, my days at sea solo are up to 927 on rowboats and this, on this rowboat. And my overall time, including two-person rows with another boat as well to Hawaii in 2016 is up to 1,008 right now. And these are uh, career records uh, among ocean rowers. Uh, I am leading the pack right now in days at sea. That is and incredible. I'm and you, you, are also, you also hold a record as being the first person to complete a solo circumnavigation of the world by human power. That is correct. Yeah, that's the one between 2007 and 2012. The first, first person to have uh, circumnavigated by human power is Jason Lewis, a British man. He took 13 years to complete his journey. He would go back, work, save money, go back and continue the journey. Uh, on his uh, pedal-driven propeller boat, he had, it was a two-person boat and he had a partner on his ocean crossings, typically. So his was registered as, as the first circumnavigation and mine as the first solo circumnavigation. I like to define it as self-propelled. So okay. once, once you're on land and inter, inter, you know, just interacting with people, coming into gas stations, buying food, whatever, you're not alone. So solo, I don't like that term. It's more self-propelled is how I like to define it. Got it. On the oceans, I was certainly solo. And then... Uh, over land, I used a bicycle. I didn't use a tandem bicycle, for example, or a uh, double kayak. I used a solo kayak when I had to kayak on certain coastlines, like Solomon, Solomon Sea coastline of Papua New Guinea. I you had to use a kayak until I get to I got to a trail that would take me south to coral seashores before I walked across. Yeah, so quickly uh, tell us where yeah. did you start that circumnavigation from and, and, and in very rough terms, where yeah, did so you go? The circumnavigation started at Bodega Bay, 2007 July, 
I wanted to go to Australia. It turned into a strong La Nina year. I couldn't cross the equator. I ended up north of Papua New Guinea. Uh, and then uh, we picked up the boats from the water. I was in the wrong hemisphere in the wrong season. That was 2008, May. 312 days later, I couldn't make it to land. And then uh, after the typhoon season, we returned to the same spot, dropped the boat in the water, and I rode the Bismarck Sea in 21 days to land on the north shores of Papua New Guinea. Then I sea kayak Solomon Seashores, walked south to Port Moresby. I relaunched by a rowboat to Cape York on the Coral Sea. Um, Cape York is the northeastern tip of Australia. I made my arrival there and then I continued by sea kayak from there uh, to Cooktown where I met, I found paved roads. Then I continued by bicycle clockwise around coastal Australia. I climbed Kosciuszko there as part of my six summits project. We can talk about that. And then I relaunched from Carnarvon in west, northwestern Australia and uh, landed at Madagascar uh, November of 2010 and returned there March of 2011 after the cyclone season to cross the Mozambique Channel. Then I landed at Mozambique, bicycled up to Tanzania, climbed Kilimanjaro, bicycled across to Zambia, Namibia, and then relaunched from there. And 154 days later, I landed at Venezuela. One day of cycling got me around this peninsula I couldn't row around. <laughs> we portaged the boat on a truck to the north side, and I relaunched from Carupano in Venezuela. 69 days later, I had rowed the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico landed at Cameron, Louisiana. And then a month of bicycling brought me back to where I started, Bodega Bay. And that was 2012, July. So wow. five, years, 11, five years, 11 days it took me. And you probably got tired listening to the story. No, that is amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. It's a long and, one. And, and I know that there are more adventures within all of that trail than you could ever, than we could ever fit in this podcast. Um, so which is why I want to jump back to the, to the adventure that you're yeah. currently on and, and ask yeah. you a little more in depth about the boat and your experience at sea. And I know you're also a sailor. So yes. I'm very curious how being solo at sea as a rower differs from being solo at sea or just at sea as a sailor? There are many differences. Uh, the main difference being uh, my options are really limited on the rowboat. So if we, are, if we were to use sailor's terminology, I can uh, row this boat with following seas. I can only go broad reach with this rowboat. And if I set the boat to receive the seas on, say, starboard tack in, uh, uh, on Broadreach, receiving it at about 120 degrees or so from the bow, the wind, um, that is about my limit. That's how I, uh, as, as close as I can get to the wind before the boat starts rolling, making rowing very difficult. And then the boat would uh, run at about 20 degrees off the wind uh, toward weather. So 
she does behaves that way. Uh, so you get a range plus or minus 20, 25 degrees to either side of the norm. Uh, if you were to follow the flow of the wind. So it takes a bit of forethought, research, and understanding the wind patterns, and also the currents and swells. Those are the vectors that act on my rowboat. Then I, after going sitting through these climatological data, I get a sense of what the ocean will throw at me at a given location at a given time of the year. I plan my crossings uh, to be about 30 miles a day on average and 1,000 miles a month. And then I sketch out what the optimum route should be. I was doing that uh, myself, just digesting all this climatological data. And now I have actually the participation of the University of Hawaii Pacific Research Center folks, Professor uh, Nikolai Maximenko there, they have a drift model and they modified that drift model to simulate my rowboat to see what is possible with this rowboat and what the timing could be and what the optimum route should be using historical data. They can update that. They have access to current information and wind information on an ongoing basis and they can modify this and throw waypoints at me. So with that participation, I am going to have a check on my logic, on my plans, and to, to basically, <laughs> they, they will give me my sanity check. You say drift model. It sounds like you're very buoys. much at the mercy of the, of the currents and the winds, and, and you have some control over the direction you're going by rowing, yeah. but it sounds like that you are so, much more... <laughs> yeah, when they say when they when they use drift models, so they were, for example, forecasting where the debris from uh, Fukushima disaster, the tsunami debris, would end up on the Pacific, uh, and those kinds of questions they answer. And when they modified the uh, model to accommodate by boats, uh, they were following me for 80 days as I made my way into Waikiki. So they can tell me if you went straight downwind taking into account currents as well, this is where you're going to end up. And if you were to go 10 degrees off the wind to starboard, you would end up here in 10 days, for example. Got it. Got it. And then 20 degrees would take you over here. So they give me this range plus minus on either side of the wind. And then, so basically we are getting a check on what's possible. So I don't waste my energy towards some destination that would not be possible. Sure, given sure, the sure. conditions. How many days did it take you from the West Coast to, to Hawaii? And what were the factors? Uh, why did you decide to stop when you had intended to, to go nonstop? Yeah, 80 days it took me to go from Crescent City to come to Waikiki, I should say. I am sitting at Waikiki Yacht Club, enjoying the breeze here. Uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful place. I can get used to this, but I can't, I should not get used to it because I <laughs> think on my rowboat. Yeah, yeah, it could create some uh, attachment to land is not a good thing for an ocean rower. So you need to be ready for discomfort. And my wife says <laughs> I suffer, I suffer well. So suffering well must be, uh, must be <laughs> something that you need to, to learn to do. Yes, you don't. Uh, complain and uh, you deal with the moments you work 
you look for ways to reduce discomfort and uh, you pay attention to hygiene and rinsing skin so salt doesn't create blisters or rashes and all those kinds of things. So basically it's a matter of establishing a routine and being content with the so settings. In all your and travels, not, rowing yeah. or biking or kayaking or hiking up mountains. Yeah. Tell us about a moment of extreme discomfort and how you managed to get through it. An extreme discomfort could be uh, Bismarck Sea was terrible yeah, because we lifted the boat off the water. Philippine fishermen helped me, took the boat to Philippines. Uh, they picked me up in May and then brought me back and dropped me off mid-January uh, in 2008 so I could continue on the Bismarck Sea after the typhoon season. And somehow during that transport or just before I got on the vessel, with my rowboat, I injured my lower back and I was in extreme pain. Uh, it may have been a herniated disc because I later on had that problem and uh, had to address it. I wasn't aware of that though at the time, whether it was a herniated disc. It was, I just said, well, maybe I pulled something, but it was a nerve problem clearly because aching up and down. So. Uh, on the Bismarck Sea, I was rowing by not using my back, just my legs, leaning back, using my stomach muscles and using my arms. So I would just be in this plank position, reverse plank, uh, leaning back at about, I don't know, 30 degrees or so from vertical and then using my leg and arms, no back, just using my body as counterweight to the oars and just maintaining that. Uh, I took muscle relaxant, anti-inflammatory, and painkiller at the same time. That cocktail, <laughs> 21 days later, I made it to Finch Harbor, uh, northern Papua New Guinea, and I could barely walk. It was terrible, and it took a while to heal that. So that was, I think, the biggest discomfort. What makes you push instead of saying, Look, I'm going to throw in the towel. I'm just in too much pain. All right. Pain is a feeling. It can be managed. So is fatigue. It can be managed. Quitting is permanent. It scars you. So as long as I can manage and as long as I can move myself one day at a time, one hour at a time, one, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, month at a time, whatever the parameter may be, in that moment, I, as long as I'm making progress, as long as I am not in direct danger, I should keep going uh, because I am in this to get the boat to a destination. Same thing on the mountain. I am there to reach the summit. Quitting is forever, but it takes wisdom to know when to quit. The danger that experience brings is you may get cocky and think that, hey, you got this and push yourself beyond a reasonable limit. Uh, I am definitely pushing the limits of human performance here. Uh, a lot of times it is boring, slow, tedious progress. It doesn't take superhuman effort to get the boat across, but there are episodes that require my absolute commitment uh, with little rest 
when I go from one wind regime to another or one current regime to another, like when I had to break free of California shores on the way here. Uh, I understand that's a very difficult part of the trip. It is uh, because this year, for example, was especially difficult uh, because the mid-latitude jet stream formed farther north and farther west and that pushed the Pacific high accordingly. And that brought northwesterly winds. So when I left from Crescent City, my reason for launching so far north was to avoid land effects with the overheated valleys in Southern California, like Sacramento Valley, sucking all that cold air from the upwelling ocean. All winds that come to California shores in Southern California take a easterly turn and rush toward the shore. And that is a terrible effect on a solo rover who at some point has to stop and sleep. When I left Crescent City, my thought was I could just drop south and as land receded east, I would put more and more distance between me and land and then eventually I could turn southwest. Uh, when I came to Cape Mendocino, I got a big blow and essentially paralleled the shore. I lost ground and it did, I couldn't uh, stay west as much as I wanted. And about 120 miles west of Monterey, I was debating and for about 48 hours, I vacillated, do I turn this boat to San Diego, failing that to uh, Ensenada in uh, Mexico and call it done and try it another year because this summer is not working for me. As we were debating this, trying to slow down my uh, descent due south, uh, a cold front passed over my boat and we were expecting that. So that's why I was slowing my pace. Then that meant that winds veered as the cold front passed. So the northwesterly winds became north, northwest and then north for a couple of days. And I said, that's my break out of jail free card and I need to make the best of it. So then I was on the oars. 18 hours a day for five days. And then wow. I was able to break west. If I had gone south, there was a wind hole south of me. And that was like a fork in the road. And if I went southwest, I went to Hawaii. If I went southeast, I went to Baja. If I fell into the wind hole, then it was huge uncertainty. Without uh, driving winds or swells or currents, the boat sort of wallows in there and you lose time as you put in the effort to come out of that hole. And any time lost that late in the season meant that I would be in the path of hurricanes that came from Guatemala and places south of Baja. So it was a critical decision to stay and make it happen. It took that kind of effort to break free. And then uh, I had to stay north of 25 north. So with the winds having pushed me so far south and so far east, and there's a distinct corner in my route as I turn southwest and west, uh, it needed to be a bit more smooth toward uh, north of Hawaii. With that much easterly and southerly ground lost, I had to row more west than west-southwest, 
uh, and that meant that I was receiving C's beam on. And uh, there were in August squalls coming from Gulf of Alaska, from Queen Charlotte Sound, cold air coming in and hitting uh, high humidity where I was and creating these squalls. And these brought northerly winds, made my life miserable, trying to push me south of 25. And I was, our risk management uh, plan was to stay at 25 north as long as I could tolerate it so that any hurricanes or the remnant lows from the hurricanes would pass south of me. So that, that raises the question in my mind. You were talking yep. earlier about discomfort and, and the ability to push through the pain and the discomfort because they're temporary, but real danger is something else. With the squalls like that, when in your travels and in your adventures, have you must have faced real danger that you really worried about with your, your life. Yeah. Tell, tell us either on the water or off. Well, those moments and those decision points. On the water, I think the most dangerous episode I had with my rowboat was going across the Great Barrier Reef. After I left from Port Moresby, I approached the Great Barrier Reef. I had studied the channels in those ribbon reefs that ran, that run uh, from northwest to southeast along the northeastern shores of far, far northeastern Queensland along Cape York. So I had studied those channels and I had marked a dozen of them. And then depending on what the wind would do or turn would do on the other side, uh, from each one I had marked paths, uh, a few different paths, depending on what was behind them. There were more corals. So all these had been studied ahead of time because I didn't want to figure it out on the fly. So as I approached the Great Barrier Reef, I ended up lining up with a half mile wide channel that I had not marked or studied. Then I approached this thing just right at about 7 p.m. in the evening. And uh, with my luck, I had ebb tide. So the tide was coming out, it wouldn't let me in, which meant that I was pushed back and the wind was from the Northeast. The ribbon reef was running northwest, and the current was running along the reef due northwest. So that meant that I was stuck outside with the reef to my port side, and I had to keep my bow to the wind as much as possible to keep from losing ground toward the reef. Imagine hearing a waterfall just 500 yards away. You oh, have that God. noise, waves crashing all the time, and uh, there is no time to quit. There's no time to rest. There's no time to eat. So I had some energy bars, and I had these packets of, uh, like tea bags, I had coffee bags, right? I would uh, grab uh, one of those coffee bags, and I would tear the bag, toss it in my mouth, drink water on top of it, and call it coffee. And then I had energy bars, so I stayed out all night <laughs> and trying to stay off the rocks, basically. Had wow. the wind picked up from what it was, 
10 to 15 knots, I think it was, had it picked up another few knots, it would have pushed me toward the reef. I was just right. And it was, it was all I could do to maintain my distance running parallel to the ribbon reef all the way to the other end of that reef. And by the morning, after 12 hours of this, the morning came and I was at the other end of the reef. There was again ebb tide and the water was pushing out and the wind, uh, it was balancing the wind. I could take a half hour nap. I set two alarms, slept half an hour, woke up. I was still being pushed away from the entrance. Said, okay, good. I can sleep another half an hour. I woke up 50 minutes later and I was being rushed in. <laughs> so oh, in a panic, oh. in a panic, I said, uh oh, I didn't hear the alarm. In a panic, I got out and started rowing. I could see rocks under, uh, swirling water, uh, just standing waves here and there, and basically got carried across uh, those, that channel. Uh, trying to navigate the green blobs on my chart plotter. And I could see green blobs, but I could see no reef around me. And then once I was inside, then uh, I kept rowing to put distance. As the tide turns, I was able to dangle my anchor uh, at the end of, uh, I had 200 feet of line and I put another 200 feet to it. I could scratch the bottom. I, I found the bottom and I was able to actually keep the boat from drifting in directions I didn't want it to go. And then I had to feel the tide. So I would drop anchor and swing on it. And then when the swing changed direction, I would gather the anchor and start rowing and kept playing that game all the way to Cape York. It and were you able to sleep while you were on anchor? Yes, that's my opportunity to rest because otherwise I'm working, I'm uh, trying to make progress in a certain direction, trying to make the best of the conditions and how much does your boat draw? The deepest point is about two and a half, three feet at the tip of the rudder. Uh, the boat itself doesn't draw much at all. Uh, two feet, or a foot and a half at most, really. But you could still find coral that was that shallow that could break your boat up easily. It's plywood. It's plywood. I would not trust the boats to take that challenge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. that that. And then, of wow. course, uh, if, yeah, if, if, if the boat then crashed, then I, here I am on the reefs getting cut up, whatever, shark-infested waters, and you take your EPIRB. I had the EPIRB handy uh, just in case. Yeah, it was, it was a great challenge. One of many. And the, the most dangerous thing I do, actually, is people want to hear more about sharks and whales bumping my boat, whatever. <laughs> uh, or hairy stories like that. But the most dangerous thing I do is actually bicycling on roads with right. steel bumpers coming at me at 60 miles an hour, every single one of them likely to be a distracted driver watching, uh, uh, you know, talking on their cell phone or texting while they drive. Well, that is so that, something that we all have to remember that we, Oh yeah. We take risks every day by getting in the car that, 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 <laughs> A lot of adventures yeah. wouldn't imagine taking. And I have to say my parents who have sailed all over the world, miles and miles and miles at sea. Yes, the most dangerous situation they got themselves into was a car accident in Europe, in, in Greece. Yeah. On the mountains, I can time my climb. I can be cautious about the objective 
hazards uh, at sea. I can choose to be at sea outside of storm seasons. I can be well prepared uh, to address any problems that may arise on the rowboats. You mentioned that, that your goal yeah. is to, to make it to Asia and then climb Everest. And, and you yes. alluded to uh, a six summit uh, attempt. Right. Tell yeah. us about that. My idea of a circumnavigation started standing in front of a world map in our software development lab back in 97. And uh, this thing had the Americas on the right, Pacific in the middle. So I traced my finger to Turkey where I'm from and called it journey home. And then that thing per uh, stewed for a while and it became a quiet obsession. Uh, when I met Joran Krop in 2001, he was the Swedish adventurer who had bicycled from Sweden to Nepal in 1996 to climb Everest. Uh, he had towed his climbing gear behind him. He was famous for that. And I was one of the hosts as part of the board of um, American Alpine Club chapter in Seattle. So we met and his first two questions to me were, when are you starting? Do you have sponsors? That was, a, that was a tough question, of course. And I had all sorts of excuses, 97 to 2001, I hadn't started yet. And in 2002, September 30th, we got together to climb short pitches of volcanic rock in Eastern Washington. And uh, we had an accident, he fell and he died. The first time that we got to climb together ended tragically. Oh. Uh, this person who had encouraged me was, out of my life as quickly as he came. He was as old as my brother, 35 years old then. And uh, I said, life is short, I gotta go and talk to my then fiance Nancy, now my wife. I said, I have to do this, I must do this. She goes, yes, you will, you must. We didn't look back after that. We reorganized our lives, sold a Lakeview condo in Seattle, moved a bit farther out, cut the mortgage rate, mortgage commitment by half, sold the second car, reorganized our lives so I could get going. And on the way back from his funeral in November, I drew the world map on a piece of paper, the proverbial napkin, marked the highest summit on each continent, except Antarctica. I called it Six Summits Project. And I was and sketched, you know, based on what I knew, uh, lines between them to connect them somehow said, I'm going to do the circumnavigation and climb these at the same time. First uh, summit to climb was Mount McKinley. Uh, so an accident happened September. The decision was in November on the plane to do the six summits project. And on February 1st, I left Seattle uh, by towing a trailer on a bicycle, just like Yoran had to Everest. And uh, using the tires, I bicycled north uh, in winter conditions uh, through British Columbia and Yukon, made it to Alaska and reached the summit 29th of May with four other friends who we walked the length of the Kahitna Glacier. People fly in to do that. I got off the mountain and married Nancy in Alaska. Uh, she flew back. I bicycled back. That was our honeymoon. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, That's great. Yeah, and then she's special. And then... Uh, she must I, be to support support you in in this. Oh yeah, she uh, we we have a, an understanding here, and 
she is the best thing that could happen that could have happened to me i she is the foundation against which i thrust forward you know uh and she is the homing beacon that calls mm. me back it's important to have that kind of support in one's life otherwise it's just not possible you would be making choices otherwise all the time uh whether to go or to stay anyway so uh I started the circumnavigation in 2007, as I was saying, then Kosciuszko and Kilimanjaro got done. Due to the financial crisis of 2008 and 2000, between 2008 and 2010, sponsorships were not happening and our budget deficit had reached a couple hundred thousand dollars already. So I decided to bypass Everest and Elbrus and went straight to Africa to climb Kilimanjaro. And then in Africa, uh, it was, this thing was taking too long and we needed time together with Nancy and then we made a grand bargain. I said, I'm going to skip Aconcagua as well and come straight home uh, and, and finish the circumnavigation because nobody's going to write about this, talk about this unless I finish the circumnavigation. It doesn't matter that I had rowed three oceans by then and become the first person to have done so, all that. So she decided to wait and I decided to rush on home it took me 18 months after we had that conversation to make it home <laughs> on the circumnavigation, but it was it is done. So now Everest, Elbrus, and Aconcagua are on my to-do list. So you complete Everest, and then what so is the I route will, to Aconcagua? Well, I will uh, hopefully reach Vietnam. Uh, Hong Kong is looking very unlikely because of the currents and winds, and the visa situation is not helping. Now, once I make landfall, then I will sort out uh, who's going to give me visa. Uh, Myanmar is not giving visas due to the pandemic either. And China will have to change their visa policy because they're going to have the Winter Olympics soon. They can't say to you know, participants and spectators, don't come because we've got a pandemic. They're going to hold the thing and they're going to have a policy. They're going to declare these are the requirements. Do you meet it? Then you can come. Otherwise, don't come. And then we'll figure out how we're going to meet those requirements. So long story short, once I get to shore, I will pack the boat in a container, 40-foot container. And then I will return and gather high-altitude gear and permits and all that. And then go back to my point of landfall with my bicycle, start the ride to foothills of Everest. Whether that's through China to Tibet or through Laos, Myanmar, India to Nepal, well, time will tell. I am hoping to attempt Everest in the fall of 2022 and then bicycle that winter to Albus, Caucasus, and then climb that in March of 2023. And then that summer carry on to Portugal. And from Portugal, I would uh, row to Guyana's. I would reach Guyana's probably in January, February of 2024, and then figure out what time of the, that year I could climb Aconcagua, and then after that, return home to where I started. So it's going to be a second circumnavigation, it appears, if I can keep my ducks in a row. Wow. <laughs> so two circumnavigations and six summits. Where yes. can people follow you once you shove off? Yes, uh, the, the website is 
erdenerush.com, E-R-D-E-N-E-R-U-C.com. That is difficult to remember, I know. So you can go to westboundrower.com, which will forward you there. So westboundrower. Westboundrower.com. And I'll also put a link in the show notes so people can find it. Yeah. And on that website, when that uh, link forwards you to my personal website, adventures.com, you will see a tracking page, you will see blog, you will see information, you will see causes, under causes. If you scroll down, you will see plastics in the ocean, and that'll take you to the educational, the, the, the links that uh, Ocean Recovery Alliance has prepared for my crossing. They call it Westbound Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, they put out new content. Uh, I love that. Um, based on what I'm uh, uh, covering at sea and they're trying to touch different aspects of life on the ocean and life as an ocean rower and what I'm doing. All of these are uh, great efforts. I think students would benefit as much as adults. Uh, It's part of our raising awareness, the campaign. Well, I wanna wish you the very best on the next leg. Thank you, Erdin, so much for talking to us um, about this part of your adventure and all of your past adventures. Um, We'll be excited to follow as you continue your circumnavigation, second circumnavigation. (laughs) Thank you so much for the opportunity to address your audience. I think uh, they will have a fun uh, escape if they want to follow my dot on the tracking page and read the updates it's it's a it's an excuse to take a break <laughs> for sure for sure and you're not only a rower you're a sailor as well which i alluded to oh earlier. yes and you um have done a number of deliveries i understand yes i am a sailor i'm a sailing instructor in seattle and i do deliveries i have a 50 ton master uh, with sailing endorsement uh, as a license. Uh, I'm a near coastal master. And I am working on uh, raising that tonnage. I am definitely going to do more deliveries. I have big dreams. So and maybe there's a third circumnavigation in your future. <laughs> I don't know. Like uh, Vendée bon- Globe sounds really exciting. But we need to follow you. Continue following. I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk. Thank you again. And best of luck. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Erden is just west of Hawaii and nearly north of Johnston Atoll right now in the North Pacific. You can follow his progress at westboundrower.com. That's westboundrower.com. And I apologize that the episodes haven't been dropping quite as regularly, but I've been spending long hours in the boatyard the past few weeks, and it's kept me from editing. But rest assured, I do have a lot of good interviews coming your way. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, do leave a comment in Apple Podcasts, or you can reach out to me directly on Instagram at outthegatesailing, or via email at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. As always, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and until next time, smooth sailing.